Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. My name is Tim Durrant, I'm Associate Director of the IFG and I'm stepping in at short notice to the presenter's chair. We're here because yesterday Parliament was recalled for an emergency debate on the situation in Afghanistan and we've recalled Inside Briefing for an emergency podcast discussion. The Foreign Secretary may have been on a beach as Kabul fell, but the IFG team are back at our desks and in the virtual studio to talk about what this all means for Westminster and the workings of government. I'm joined by Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service programme and used to work in the Cabinet Office. Hi, Alex. Hello, Tim. Alice Lilly, our senior researcher and expert on all things parliamentary, is here. Hi, Alice. Hi, Tim. And I'm delighted that we are joined by Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, whose distinguished diplomatic career includes spells as the UK's first national security advisor, permanent secretary of the Foreign Office and permanent representative to NATO. Thank you very much for being with us, Peter. Hi, good to be with you. There's an awful lot to talk about um, because things are moving so quickly in Afghanistan. On Sunday, the Taliban entered the capital, Kabul, about 20 years after the US invaded and overthrew the Taliban. President Biden is defiant that his decision to withdraw US troops was the right one. And now, as thousands of Afghans try to flee the country, Boris Johnson and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab are defending the UK's handling of a rapidly deteriorating decision, which nobody, it seems, predicted. So how are ministers handling this crisis? What are we learning about the UK's foreign policy priorities and its international alliances? And as the Taliban take control and thousands of Afghans attempt to flee, what questions will be asked of the UK government and can it answer them? Let's start, Alice, with the emergency recall of Parliament yesterday. What was it for? And is this a rare occurrence? For Parliament to be recalled in the summer is certainly quite rare. The last time that happened, you need to go back to the summers of both 2013 and 2014, where Parliament was recalled to discuss potential British military involvement in Syria and in Iraq, respectively. Um, So that is certainly quite rare. In terms of what it was trying to achieve, I think the first thing is that this was about accountability and it was about scrutiny. Parliament is not currently due to come back from summer recess for another couple of weeks and the situation is changing so rapidly that it was important to get MPs and peers back in Parliament so they could ask ministers for updates, for information about what's happened, what the government's plan is um, and really draw out um, from the government what's going on. That's, That's one of Parliament's primary functions. So that's the thing number one. The second thing, I think, is something that's a little bit less tangible and it's a little bit harder to kind of put value on. The government, when it drew up the order paper yesterday, um, was asking MPs and peers to debate a general motion, to debate something saying that they had considered what's happening in Afghanistan. They weren't being asked to make any kind of decision on policy in the same way that Parliament was back in, in 2013 and 2014. And there's been a bit of chat the last few days about, well, actually, if Parliament's not being asked to do anything specific, is this worthwhile? And I think it really is. It was a pretty extraordinary session in in both houses yesterday. And you have to remember that Parliament is the representative body of the UK. And at a moment of major international change, as we've been seeing in the last few days, it is incredibly important that MPs and peers as representatives have that opportunity to come together and debate what's going on. And actually, it ended up, I think, in both houses being quite a powerful day. Peter, you were there, you were you were in the Lords for the debate. What was your takeaway from, from the debate in, in your house and from the Commons? 
I mean, I was in the House of Lords, and I think it showed to advantage because it's a house full of real experts on a subject like this, development experts, intelligence, military, and a lot of thoughtful contributions. But the raw passion and power was in the Commons. This was the first time the Commons had been full, of course, um, since the um, pandemic struck. Um, and it reminded us all, and ministers, I think, that the mood of the House can sway with a few powerful and passionate speeches, as we had from Theresa May and Tom Duganat and others. And I think that caught Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab by surprise, actually. They found themselves on the wrong end of a very passionate House um, and struggling to make their case. It showed Parliament's power back after this long period of hybrid meeting. Completely agree with that. And as you say, you know, there was there was passion on all sides of the House of Commons, wasn't there? It wasn't just uh, the opposition criticising um, what, what, what's happening. It, there was a sort of sense of unity. Do you think, um, how much pressure do you think the Prime Minister is under right now from his own side as well as from the Commons generally? I think that the Prime Minister and Dominic Raab missed the raw anger and the sense of betrayal uh, on their own benches that was absolutely uh, obvious yesterday. I don't think either of them have a great affinity, actually, with the military world, um, and they'd rather regarded Afghanistan as something of a sideshow that could be left to Ben Wallace while they concentrated on Brexit and other things. And they were reminded very starkly there of a very raw sense of betrayal in the whole of the former military community, very strongly represented in the House of Commons. I think that will probably have been quite a surprise to them. Absolutely. And there have been calls today uh, for, for Dominic Rob to resign because of his slow return to the UK from his holiday while, while this was all unfolding in Afghanistan. Do you think he'll have to take that step and resign? I don't think he will, as long as he has got the Prime Minister's confidence. And the Prime Minister himself, of course, is not above blame for having uh, underestimated the scale and the speed with which this crisis would come. So I doubt that that in itself will mark the point where Dominic Raab goes. But I think he is weakened by this. Uh, I think the fact that neither of them have shown any great attention to Afghanistan since they came to office. Boris Johnson hasn't been to Afghanistan as prime minister. Um, I think is a miscalculation, uh, given that there was still significant British military presence and risk in Pakistan, in Afghanistan. And now they're, they're looking like they didn't take the problem seriously or see it looming as the crisis it's become. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex, were you watching what, what, what stood out for you from the debates yesterday? Yes, uh, I was. I, I caught up with it afterwards. I mean, it was, a, as Peter and Alice were saying, it was a powerful day and showed Parliament, um, uh, showed the, you know, the, the importance of Parliament and how even, as Alice was saying, without a vote, you can, Parliament can sort of speak to the nation and speak to politics. I mean, the things that stood out for me were obviously the Tom Tugendhat speech uh, as a sort of masterful oratorical performance, as well as uh, expressing the uh, emotion and uh, anger and frustration that, that he and others on the conservative backbenchers feel. I also think Keir Starmer actually did a 
pretty good job, both in terms of drawing together the threads of the argument and the criticism about the competence of the government, particularly as regards the evacuation and anticipation. Um, but also, uh, and this uh, sort of, we'll, we'll get on to talk about this a little bit more, I think, but also the uh, strategic gap in the government's presence uh, on the world stage. I think mm. the thing that um, it felt to me would have landed uncomfortably on the conservative backbenchers was Keir Starmer's allegations of an abdication of responsibility and an absence of the United Kingdom from the kind of global forums, particularly because we're um, uh, currently the president of the G7. Um, so it was a you know it, it, it was an important day. How how long this will resonate, I don't know. Um, there is a there's a slight tendency. I think it's a bit too early to tell whether this really is a turning point. I think there's a slight tendency to overclaim uh, in the moment on some of these uh, occasions. And I do just wonder a little bit whether um, what we've actually seen both in Afghanistan and in Parliament is an exposing of uh, a situation that was already there in the UK's geopolitical weakness rather than a sort of dramatic um, new development. But I, I suppose time will tell on that. Yeah, it will, won't it? Um, I mean, let's come on to the, the sort of geopolitics shortly. But just to finish off on Parliament, Alice, if I can come back to you, one of the other um, uh, people who spoke yesterday who, whose intervention has been praised was Theresa May. Um, and we spoke about this in a recent inside briefing about the role of, of former prime ministers. But do you think she, you know, was she able to bring an extra sort of extra level of gravitas perhaps to the debate given her position? I think she was, yes. Um, she was called by the Speaker very early on in the debate, which is not particularly surprising given her, her position. But I think having somebody who until recently was having to make the same kinds of decisions with the same kind of information that the current Prime Minister has, it automatically gives them an awful lot of credibility and means that they really will be listened to quite intently by people inside Parliament and outside it. I think the other thing it's worth picking up on as well is that some of the um, other quite powerful interventions, certainly in the Commons, came from people who are former ministers and former ministers in relevant areas. So people like Tobias Elwood, um, Johnny Mercer. And I think this really, again, goes to show quite how valuable it can be to have people on the backbenches who do have that kind of ministerial experience, who've who've been on both sides of the coin, if you like. It was also perhaps a reminder to the government that when you have former ministers on your backbenches who perhaps don't feel as though they're going to be returning to ministerial office anytime soon, they can end up being quite a thorn in your side. In terms of the sort of, you know, the big picture, the the sort of strategic view and, and what this means for the UK's role in the world. Um, Peter, what, what's your view on this? Was was this always going to happen? Um, you know, the, the Western forces have been in Afghanistan for 20 years now. Was remaining longer, would that have been viable? I mean, this outcome needn't have happened in this way. Of course, we weren't going to stay in Afghanistan forever, um, but we were there at quite low numbers, uh, at quite low risk. There hadn't been any fatalities among Western forces for several years. And this was both a reassurance to the Afghan regime and a deterrence of uh, Taliban adventurism. And this precipitate withdrawal to meet a US political deadline brought us to the uh, humiliating crisis we've had in recent days. Uh, And I think it could have been avoided because we could have stayed longer and handed over in a more systematic way to the Afghan government. As it was, the American decisions really pulled the rug out from under the Afghan government 
and gave their security forces little incentive to fight on. So this was not an inevitable outcome. It was the result of a very uh, unilateral and, uh, in my view, unnecessarily precipitate decisions, um, which in the end knocked the stuffing out of the Afghan regime. And there was a lot of criticism yesterday in, in Parliament, wasn't there, for the US and for President Biden's decision. What's your sense of, of what all of this means for the, the so-called special relationship between London and Washington right now? It was very striking, wasn't it? We'd been through four years of Donald Trump, where people had become mm. used to criticising the US president. But here was President Biden with his America is back uh, mantra, um, normally would have been treated with respect and deference from the Conservative side in the House of Commons. And yet there were some withering attacks on his judgment in uh, the way he's conducted this withdrawal. Uh, and I think that is surprising. We have to put it alongside the integrated review published by the British government in March, which set out some pretty boastful um, claims that Britain was going to be a major global power moving the dial on international issues around the world. And yet this was a very sharp reminder that now we are a middle-sized power and when the big decisions come to be taken in Washington, in the end we've got little choice but to go along whether we like it or not. So I think it puts into perspective some of the ambitions uh, and the exceptionalist rhetoric of the integrated review uh, and is a pretty cold shower actually to those who thought Britain would be um, operating as one of the great powers in the world after Brexit. Absolutely. And Alex, you looked at, at the Integrated Review when it was published. Um, did it miss this issue coming? Um, do you think there was enough of a sense in, in government that this, this was going to be a defining foreign policy question in 2021? Yeah, it's interesting. And it, I mean, it's really interesting hearing Peter talk about that. There, I'd, I'd, uh, uh, he'll no doubt have a view on this as well. I mean, there was a, there was a bit of quick, you know, control F, searching the Integrated Review for, for mentions of Afghanistan um, in the uh, sort of immediate aftermath of the fall of of the, um, the the government, and there are only two mentions of Af- Afghanistan in the integrated review, and they're both pretty kind of glancing. So to that extent, it wasn't a big feature of um, the review. But then I think you put it in the context that Peter did, which is that was a very broad, very ambitious um, statement of all of these different foreign policy and security uh, interests that the UK has. It was praised at the time for its ambition on climate change, on uh, recognising uh, a tilt towards um, India and China. It does cover the, you know, it covers the ground on security. It talks quite a lot about terrorism, but I think you could argue that it missed um, the specifics of Afghanistan. And there was a, uh, in those couple of sentences about it, there was a bit of complacency about maintaining security and stability in, in Afghanistan, but not a lot more. I, I, th- I think there's also something interesting that, that and, and, and Peter again pointed to it, the contrast between the ambition of the integrated review and almost the sort of diminished stature and absence uh, in, in the world of the prime minister, the foreign secretary and the UK as a, as a power. I think if you are a middle sized power, you need to be really canny, really energetic, clever about where you put your assets. Uh, and there's a bit of a sense, it goes back to that Keir Starmer attack, really, of, of complacency around um, how we're going to um, run our, our position in, in, in the world at the moment. Absolutely. And in terms of the sort of the kind of Whitehall and, and government kind of structures, you know, is, do you have a sense of, of where the key decisions are being made? There's a kind of recurring criticism that the, 
the Foreign Office, uh, I mean, Philip Hammond, former Foreign Secretary, told us that he thought the Foreign Office had been having an identity crisis because it wasn't sure what its role was with so much foreign policy being made in number 10 um, and by the National Security Council as well. Do you have a sense of, you know, who are the key players on these this processes and where does the sort of, you know, balance of power lie within government um, on, on Afghanistan? Yes, I think, and there's, I'd add to that, there's a pretty unedifying spat going on behind the scenes, breaking out into briefing wars between the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence. Mm-hmm. And that's doing nobody any good. Arguably, it's a, it's a consequence of, of um, the Defence Secretary uh, taking a sort of outsized role in the immediate response to this. I mean, I mean all of the above are important. Um, I would say the slightly under-examined position in uh, some of this in, in Whitehall terms is the National Security Advisor, Peter Zold job, um, Stephen Lovegrove, who's the principal advisor to the Prime Minister on uh, these questions. So it's his job really to draw all of these threads together, um, to crack heads at official level and sometimes at political level, and to make sure the the Prime Minister is getting the absolute top quality advice that balances all of these interests off. So National Security Council, I was also struck that that Johnson convened COBRA. And as far as I've seen, I might have missed it, hasn't um, openly convened a National Security Council meeting. So uh, he does seem to be looking at it through that kind of crisis response lens rather than the the national security community so that's one to watch i think but peter again will have views on that yeah peter how would you use the the nsc the national security council if you were there right now yeah i think we i think we are confronted by a hot crisis and a cold crisis the hot crisis is the evacuation the immediate humanitarian issues setting up a resettlement scheme um, and i think they're using cobra for that uh, and it's quite a good vehicle for the hour-by-hour crisis management. But the NSC ought to be also meeting and thinking about the more longer-term strategic things, the kinds of issues we were just discussing, the relationship with America, where does it leave that, um, the relationship with India and China, you know, where does it put British foreign policy in a broader perspective? And I don't think that the NSC is meeting and doing that. When it does meet, of course, it's a very good opportunity for the Foreign Office to put ideas around Whitehall and get wider support for them. So um, I'm not sure I agree that the Foreign Office has an identity crisis. I think the government is not taking the time to do the kind of strategic thinking which the Foreign Office would naturally lead on in all the um, rush of trying to cope with this unexpected and very serious uh, humanitarian and human drama. But it, the, the machinery is there. I'm sure Stephen Lovegrove, you know, is working to pull the threads together. I'd like to think that there was some strategic thinking going on alongside the hour by hour crisis management. And a bit of me, uh, sorry, to, but a bit of me does wonder whether, um, I mean, it, it, obviously the, the hot crisis is incredibly important uh, and getting British nationals and uh, Afghans out of Kabul is really important and all credit to those working on it. It was striking how much that that was the focus in Parliament yesterday. It was almost a sort of convenient, uh, poor phrase, uh, poor choice of words in the in the circumstances, maybe, but almost a convenient distraction from some of these really profound questions about the UK's role in the world um, and actually the impotence of Parliament in the face of those those huge huge forces uh, was was the tendency to focus on the on the the specific and the and the micro in the in the hot crisis as Peter described. Now, I think there was more of the bigger picture strategic thinking in the House of Lords. Again, there are some very distinguished former ministers there, like Philip Hammond and George Robertson, um, who were making very interesting contributions. And people were already thinking ahead to what does this mean for the balance of power in the world, say, between the Americans and the Chinese, given that China will be moving into the vacuum very 
assiduously in Afghanistan. Um, and you know, what does this mean about global Britain and how Britain can use its uh, assets and its influence in the world, uh, given that the Americans have shown that on this case, they really weren't interested in listening to allied views. So I think the House of Lords was doing quite a good job there, less high profile media wise, but some important substance buried in the long hansard of our seven hour debate. So on that point about about you know the role that the US is is taking and, and the approach that President Biden is taking, Alice, you're sort of IFG's resident Washington watcher. What what have you kind of gleaned from the last few days about what this says on about President Biden's priorities? So I think it's worth separating out um, the decision that Biden has has taken about withdrawal and the kind of tone and manner in which. The withdrawal has happened. Um, Joe Biden has been fairly consistent over the years in thinking that what's happening in Afghanistan should be quite a limited mission for the US. You know, he opposed the surge back in 2009. If you go and read Obama's um, memoirs, actually, that sort of his his hesitancy about the US role in Afghanistan really comes across. So in that sense, actually, it's not a huge surprise. What I think has been really striking though this week is the kind of manner and tone of how all of this has unfolded. You know, firstly, the collapse um, in Afghanistan coming so quickly, the incredibly chaotic and, I mean, deeply upsetting scenes, frankly, we saw at, at Kabul airport. And I think that's something that is really going to damage the kind of reputation that President Biden has for mm. competence um, as much as anything. But if you also go back to the statement that President Biden made at the White House earlier this week, the tone of it, I thought, was was pretty stunning, actually. US presidents will always make foreign policy decisions with America's self-interest, you know, front and centre in their mind. But they're not always completely explicit about that. And President Biden was completely explicit about the role that self-interest was playing in this decision. He was blunt. He was pretty unapologetic um, and quite defensive. And he's he's been that way this week. So I think for somebody who is generally sort of seen as a fairly safe pair of hands, as having that sort of sense that Peter mentioned earlier, if you know America is back, and somebody who's also really renowned for his personal sense of empathy, to hear him come out and speak like that, I think was pretty surprising. I am... Um, and I think that really came across, actually, in the debates in Parliament yesterday, is the sort of fairly universal condemnation there has been for President Biden. I think the final thing I would say is what this has got me wondering is whether he is a president who wants to be remembered for his domestic achievements. You know, since he's come into office, he's emphasised the vaccine rollout. He's emphasised his infrastructure bill. He's emphasised all sorts of changes domestically. And there's almost a sense that he does not want to be a president who is defined by a long conflict that America is drawn into and that he did not start in his presidency. And that's part of the thinking in getting out of Afghanistan. I suppose, given how it has unfolded and how chaotic it's been, I'm not sure that this will allow him to actually focus on his domestic agenda, because I think he might be having to clear this up for quite some time yet. So you're talking about a leader who would like to focus on a domestic agenda, but gets sucked into foreign policy debates that may have to be at the top of their list for a long time. It sounds almost 
like Johnson and Biden have more in common than people people first thought. I want to talk now about what this means for the government in the coming months. So, Alex, um, if we could talk about the Home Office, Priti Patel announced, Home Secretary announced that the UK is going to uh, resettle um, thousands of Afghans, tens of thousands of Afghans. How well equipped do you think the Home Office is is to do that? And how is that going to sort of interact with the other issues that the Home Office is facing? Yeah, dealing with, I mean, on, on the domestic side, one of the really fascinating things about this is is the position of the Home Office. And you can almost, um, you know, you can almost feel the Home Office's discomfort at moments like this, because it's an organisation that culturally, its ministerial leadership, its history is geared towards being very sceptical about immigration, about letting migrants in, about prioritising security considerations over others. And so it puts the Home Office as an institution in quite an uncomfortable um, position. We could see in the early stages a little bit of the grinding of gears and the, you know, we need to develop a a scheme that provides us with assurance, actually perfectly reasonably, perfectly legitimately, that we're not letting lots of people in who who will claim to be refugees and actually have potential security concerns or or be a terrorist um, threat. The department is conflicted at moments like this. But what's quite interesting, actually, I think is Okay, the, the numbers aren't that big, but they have come up with a scheme fairly quickly. And that's alongside what was a genuinely sort of extraordinary and bold offer to the people of Hong Kong to resettle potentially huge numbers of people. So the Home Office, I think, is uh, is, is in a sort of slight moment of uh, identity crisis. How that fits with the broader um, perspective, I mean, since the Brexit referendum, immigration uh, has decreased in salience a little bit as a political issue. So that that gives the Home Office a bit more room to manoeuvre, a bit more space. And if numbers are, of uh, immigrants are, are dropping, again, that makes it a little bit easier to, uh, to come up with these sorts of schemes. But as we've seen also in recent months, it won't take that many headlines about boats coming across the channel with migrants for the, the politics of this to change very quickly. And, and the Home Office will, will react to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Peter, on, on one of the points there that Alex raised, you know, if you were still um, National Security Advisor, would you be worrying about a sort of an increased terror threat from events unfolding in Afghanistan and, and the sort of the, the movement of people as well? Well, I think the um, humiliation of America, which is what this primarily is about, um, can only embolden Islamic uh, extremists uh, in many places. I myself doubt that the Taliban will make the mistake again of allowing al-Qaeda to set up shop and attack the U.S. from um, Afghan soil. Last time that happened in 2001, the Americans came down on them like a ton of bricks and and chased them out of power. So I think the risk is more that um, Islamist extremists everywhere in North Africa and Southeast Asia and many places may feel emboldened by what they've seen happening. So, yes, I would certainly have the terrorist threat uh, on my radar screen. Um, but also the government need to pivot fairly rapidly to other big priorities this autumn, not least the climate conference at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason, I think, why ministers have been as restrained as they feel they can be in public about President Biden and the humiliation that he's inflicted on all of us. They need him there. They also need to keep lines open to the Chinese and others. So they'll have multiple agendas running. Of course, the, the UK and the West generally 
would now be enormously set back if there was another terrorist attack that could be attributed to Afghanistan or Pakistan and in some way a result of um, the pullout of Western forces. And that's now a risk that has been taken on and will be in everyone's mind, I'm sure. Absolutely. And what about um, future interventions? Do you think, you know, has, has, has the UK appetite for these kind of foreign interventions um, been used up? Is it, are we likely to see any more of these? Or? Well, I think the appetite was used up um, quite some time ago uh, after Iraq. I think the mantra of no boots on the ground is something that you hear all the time from ministers now. Um, and we haven't started a new intervention, of course, for, for many years. Libya was only an air power intervention. Um, if there was any lingering appetite for this sort of long duration interventions, this, I think, will have killed it. All that said, um, we still knew that need to have a strategy of how the country uses its military power for political effect. If we're always going to rule out boots on the ground, then how can we uh, use that enormous power that we have in the armed forces? I think we do need to talk in NATO about that because sometime, somewhere, our vital interests will be challenged again. But right now, absolutely no appetite for exposing British soldiers to, to risk in combat. Confining them to training missions, I guess, is the strategy. But then we've just wrapped up at very short notice a training mission in Afghanistan. So there's a degree of strategic incoherence here. Uh, if I can bring it back to the, the UK and the domestic front, Alice, um, we've mentioned earlier about, you know, the difficult relationship uh, between the government and parliament and indeed the government and conservative backbenchers. What do you think the coming months hold for ministers in the Commons? I think it's going to be a, a pretty tricky time um, for the government since the 2019 election, their time in the Commons has already been pretty tricky and far more than you would expect for a government with, you know, an 80-seat majority. Um, it was interesting yesterday sort of seeing lots of people reacting on on Twitter to the Commons debate and saying that expressing surprise at how difficult a time the Prime Minister had. Actually, if you've been paying a lot of attention to the Commons in the last couple of years, that will not have come as a surprise. On Afghanistan, on COVID, on Brexit, on all sorts of other issues like overseas aid spending, some of the most forceful critics of the government have come from their own backbenches. And if you actually go back and look at a lot of the division lists on votes in the last few months, the government might have avoided being defeated on any legislation. But there are significant numbers of conservative backbenchers rebelling at any one time. Throw that forward into the autumn when the Commons is back sitting as normal, like it was um, on Wednesday, which actually was something that did not seem to work in favour of the Prime Minister because he mm. was facing you know, a pretty loud chamber. But you've also got a government that's trying to move away from COVID and is trying to get back to its manifesto commitments into its domestic agenda, that means it's going to have to make some pretty hard decisions. You've got a spending review coming up, which is likely to be quite painful for some government departments. You've got all sorts of potentially quite tricky legislation, like things on planning reform. So I think the government might have been able to, to hold its own um, in terms of votes so far. But I think the chance of that continuing is looking relatively small. And either the government is going to have to accept that it will face defeat in the Commons at some point, or it is going to have to start making quite a lot of concessions 
to backbenchers and start giving them a bit more time for scrutiny because we've also heard quite a lot of frustration again from conservative MPs about the government's attitude to parliamentary scrutiny generally. Um, I feel like we could keep talking about this for for hours but I I think we should bring it to a close. If I can finish uh, Peter by asking you a a question. One of the um, damning pieces of criticism um, from the backbenchers that Alice referred to just then was from Theresa May as we talked about earlier. She asked the Prime Minister where is Global Britain on the streets of Kabul? So what do you think Global Britain is all about at this point and and does the government is the government doing enough to show what Global Britain really means? Well, to my mind, Global Britain was always really a slogan uh, without a strategy behind it. And the government had been looking to develop it through gestures like sending the aircraft carrier to the Indo-Pacific. But now real life has caught up with them with a very serious international crisis. And it turns out that Global Britain means nothing at all, really. It's the same old Britain um, having no choice but to work with the Americans as allies. I hope that this will lead uh, people in Whitehall to start thinking again about working more closely with the Europeans, because it was Mm. clear throughout this crisis that our interests as Western countries trying to influence America and look after our nationals in Kabul were exactly the same as other Europeans. So I'm hoping that this will be a moment where some of the bravura rhetoric about the kind of Britannia rules the waves that we had in the integrated review is revised a bit in in favour of recognising we can't depend entirely on America and it's time that we developed a working relationship again with our European neighbours. Well, that is a a perfect place to wrap up. So thank you very much for that answer. And uh, thank you all for joining me. So huge thanks to Alice Lilly. Thank you, Tim. Huge, uh, Alex Thomas. Thanks, Tim. And especially to Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts. Thanks very much indeed for having me. Not at all. It was a fascinating, if slightly depressing, discussion. Uh, So just to finish, as you know, plenty of podcasts to listen to on our sister channel, IFG Live. And do check out our website for lots of information about some really exciting events we've got coming up in September. Inside Briefing will be back next week with a summer special episode, which, appropriately enough, explores what it is like to govern in summer. This was recorded a few weeks ago before the news came crashing in from Kabul. 